Hey, this is Dr. Mike Barnett. It is an awesome privilege to fill the pulpit every Sunday at the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Having you listen to our messages on this podcast is an incredible blessing as well. And I pray that you will be encouraged in the Lord as you listen. It is vital that you commit yourself and your family to the Lord through the ministry of a local church. While it is a great blessing to have you listen to our messages, no one will be able to minister the Word of God to you and your family like a local pastor. So please do not consider this podcast as a replacement for your presence in your local church on Sunday. Be faithful, get connected, and God bless. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, and shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, if you're anything like me, and that's the first time you've ever read that text, you're asking, how in the world can we get any kind of message for Ocean Springs, Mississippi, in this year, in this time, from that? Well, whenever you come to a text of Scripture, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, and you wonder, what does this mean? Just remember this, it means the same thing that it did when Obadiah preached it. It means the same thing. The meanings never change. I hope and pray that I'll never slip up, and I might, I'm, I'm prone to that, and ask you, what does this text mean to you? That is a, a moot point because it means the same thing to what Obadiah wrote. It all has one meaning, and it's what it means when it was written down. But it has many applications. It has many applications for us today. And it did for the people back then. There's many things you can see in this. And when you come to a text like this, you ask, what does this teach me about God? What does this text tell me about God? You see, we approach the Bible and we want answers to our problems. We want... Um, Wisdom for our issues in life that we face. We want something for us. We want some affirmation. But I want to tell you, the Bible tells us about God. And we need to ask ourselves of every text, what does this tell us about God? And what does it tell us about God in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself? And how can I apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit? And so that's what we do when we approach the Bible. What does this tell us about God? See, if you approach the Bible wanting an answer to a problem you're having, you may or may not get that answer. Your answer may be in Matthew, but we're in Obadiah. 
Your answer may be in Proverbs, but we're in Obadiah. And you may not get that answer. But I want to tell you, when you go to the Bible and you seek the answerer, you seek the one who has the answer. You seek the one who is the answer. And you learn about him. And everything you learn about him, you can learn how to apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it wonderful to be able to seek the one who has the answer? Amen. And so I'm excited today about talking about how God will establish his kingdom. So let's see. First of all, in verse 17, we see the contrast of his kingdom. The contrast of his kingdom. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. This is a conjunction of contrast. The nature of the book changes all of a sudden in verse 17. We have seen what God will do to the people of Edom, to the nation of Edom, way back in Obadiah's day. And he has talked much about the day of the Lord being a day of judgment and a day of justice and a day of reaping what you have sown. We saw the terrible things that the Edomite nation did to the Israelites when they were in calamity, when there was an invasion in Jerusalem. And we saw how they treated them. They, they mocked them and they laughed and they stood around and after the battle they went in and looted the city of Jerusalem and did some terrible things. And the people who were refugees who had escaped, they captured them and turned them in and sold some of them into slavery and they profited from the downfall of God's city, God's people, Jerusalem. And we see that God says, you're going to be paid back for that. You're going to reap what you sow. I'm going to destroy the nation of Edom and it will be gone. It will be wiped out from the face of the earth. And uh, when God has brought these nations to this point of being as though they had never been. But then verse 17 changes course. And he starts talking about the people or the nation of Israel. Talking about the government of Israel. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. And he says, I'm going to deliver Israel. I'm going to bless the people of Israel one day when I establish my kingdom. There'll be no more, no more invasion. No more wars against Israel. No more holocaust. No more anti-Semitism. No more uh, embattered nation always living on the edge. You know, Israel's always in the news, isn't it? Always in the news. There's always some enemy that is raising its ugly head against Israel, whether it be Iran, whether it be um, one of the Arab nations, whether it be Egypt. There's always somebody who is after Israel. But one day, God says, there will be deliverance in Zion. It's the great contrast. And then we also see the characteristics of the kingdom. What will it be like when God establishes kingdom? Now, let me say this uh, real quickly. 
before we get into these characteristics of, of the kingdom. For some reason, and I don't know why, some commentators have gotten down to verse 17 and they all of a sudden said, we just cannot take these verses to be literal. These last few verses all the way to verse 21, we just can't take them to be literal. They've got to symbolize something. They've got to, they've got to point to something bigger and different than the literal people of God, Israel. It's got to be symbolic. And some have said it even symbolizes the church. Well, you know, I have a major problem with that. And you know what it is? It's just wrong. It's just not right. How in the world can you take 16 verses of Scripture and believe it as literal? God's saying this is what's going to happen. This is what's been done. This is what you did. This is what the Edomites did. And we say, wow, that's what they did. That's historical. And then all of a sudden, somewhere between verse 16 and 17, we switch gears. There's been a lot of harm done between the verses of the Bible. Well, I want to tell you what, what we're about to read is literally going to happen. And we're going to talk about how God keeps His promises to you. And I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Now, I'm about to give you what will the kingdom of God be like. What will it be like for Israel when God restores and God establishes His kingdom in Israel? And I want to tell you, when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom and establishes his kingdom on earth, you know what? Let me just give you this for you to think about as we're going through these things. What God will do on planet earth, he's already done in your heart and life. You hear me? You say, well, Jesus will rule when he comes back. Well, he's already ruling in your life if you're saved. There's many things that's going to happen when Jesus comes back and he's already done them in your heart and life and is doing them right now. That's why we're born again. We're born into the kingdom of God. And that's why we are the people of God. And he's our savior. He's the king of kings. So let me tell you, first of all, what's going to happen. There's going to be a reversal of fortunes when Jesus establishes his kingdom. Verse 17, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. All the way back in the book of Genesis, God gave some promises to Abraham. And then he gave the very same promises to Isaac. And then he gave the very same promises to Jacob and his descendants. And he says the, one of the main promises was this is going to be your land. Now he promised Abraham a whole lot more land than they're living on now. He promised Abraham the land from the Nile River all the way over to the Euphrates River. But if you look at the map today, Israel is not that large. It's a little bitty nation. But one day they will possess all these possessions when the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ is established when the king comes. And uh, we can see in verses 10 through 14, we can see the calamity that will fall upon Edom that they gave to the people of Israel. God's going to turn it back on them. He will a reversal of your fortunes. You know what? God does that. That's a principle of Almighty God. That's how He operates. 
When he is king, there is always a reversal of fortunes. Did you know that? Always a reversal of fortunes. You serve the Lord Jesus Christ and you give and you love him and you obey him and you provide for his work. I want to tell you one day there's going to be a reversal of fortunes and it'll all come back on you because that's what God does. He just blesses. Laying up your treasures in heaven. I won't tell you what, I kind of panicked. Well, I didn't panic. I'm not worried about it. I just kind of, I'll be honest with you, I just kind of got a little bit discouraged about things when one day last week the stock market fell by 600 points. And the Lord reminded me, but my stock market in heaven is still up. Amen. It's going to be all right. There's a reversal of our fortunes. A reversal of our fortunes. And then I want you to see, second of all, when he comes back and establishes his kingdom, verse 18 says there's going to be a reunion. If you'll notice in our text, he mentions Jacob, and then he mentions Joseph. Jacob was the name of the southern kingdom also called Judah. And so many times in the Old Testament, when you see the house of Jacob, many times that's a reference to the southern kingdom. See, the kingdom of Israel split. Solomon had all those wives, and they turned his heart against God, and he, and he, uh, he made some mistakes, and he got into sin. And when he died, he had a son who did basically the same thing, did not have the wisdom that he should have, and the kingdom of Israel split. And you had the north, and you had the south. And Jacob was a reference to the south. Now, sometimes you read the Old Testament, and the house of Jacob means the entire nation of Israel. It depends on the context. That's what you got to read the context for. But here it's referring to the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem is. And then he mentions Joseph. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they represent the northern kingdom. The house of Joseph would be the northern kingdom. Well, here, God says in Obadiah that there'll be a reunion of these two nations. It'll be a reunited nation when the Lord returns. When the Lord comes back, you won't have a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And um, eventually, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. Now, you ever heard that phrase, the lost ten tribes? You ever heard that? Raise your hand, lost ten tribes. Get that out of your mind. They ain't lost. God knows exactly where they are. Amen. I don't know where that came from, but somebody made a lot of money off of it in a bunch of textbooks, and it doesn't mean anything. Read the book of James. James knew where the ten tribes were. Amen. God knows where his people are, just like God knows where you are. Well, after that, the Babylonians came and they took the southern kingdom, uh, Judah and and the southern kingdom into captivity, and God restored them back. But when he comes back in his kingdom, it'll be a solid, reunited nation. You know what? When Jesus is king, there's a reunion. Did you know that? When Jesus is king, there's always a reunion. When people submit to his lordship, there's always a united people. There's always a united people. I will tell you that um, sometimes a church, and some of you might have been involved in the old term, a church split. You might have been involved with the the, uh, people who sit on the left side and the people who sit on the right side. 
You might be involved. You might be the people who were too cold on Sunday morning or the people who were too hot on Sunday morning. And by the way, Jay takes care of our air conditioner system. Talk to him. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm not going to get into that. Amen. Well, I already did get into it, didn't I? And they, I've seen churches split about everything. I mean all kinds of things. And my old mentor said, when you go to a church... This is what you tell them. You say, I don't care if they vote to paint the building polka dots and have pink carpet. And I said, I'm drawing the line on pink carpet. But he said, it doesn't matter. He said, you just tell them you can do anything you want to. But preacher, you control the pulpit. You control what's taught and preached because you're the one going to answer to God for it. Well, and I've seen them split over carpet and all that kind of stuff, and it's been an amazing thing. And you might have relationships with people you know, and you're split. Well, that's because one or both of you do not have the mind of Christ, and you're not submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Because when Jesus is king, and you establish Jesus as Lord of your life, and your heart, and your mind, and your thinking, I want to tell you what happens. Unity happens. And that's how it's supposed to be. Everybody's supposed to have the mind of Christ submitted to his lordship and we'll always be unified. But if one of us gets off base, we're not going to be unified. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reunite. That's what he does. He brings people together who have the mind of Christ. No rebels. Also, I want you to see, verse, uh, also in these verses... The third thing is there will be retribution. The Bible says Esau will be stubble. When the Lord comes back, he, Esau is going to answer for their sin. The people of Esau's line. They'll answer for their sin. They will reap what they sow. And you know what? When Jesus is king, he deals with your sin. And then we also see, verse 19 and 20, there's going to be restoration. There's going to be restoration. And he talks about these areas in the uh, land of Israel. And he talks about some of these people who, who lived in those areas and these cities and these regions in the land of Israel today. And he says God is going to bring his people, the Jew, and they're going to live here and they're going to possess this land. They're going to possess their possessions. And he talks about the land that's... Um, Ephraim and where the Philistines are and the Canaanites are and, and, uh, and Jerephath, all those cities. And he said they'll be inhabited by the Jewish people just like I promised them, restoration. And incidentally, God's already began the regathering of the Jew and restoring him to this land of promise. And one day Israel will possess the possession that he gave Abraham all the way stretching out to the Euphrates River. It's going to be an interesting thing to see. But you know what? God always is in the restoration business. When he's established as king, he always restores things. He always restores people. When you surrender to the lordship of Christ and you say, you're my king and I'm going to submit to you, he'll restore what you have lost by sin and bad choices and problems in your life. He'll restore them when you submit to the Lord. That's what he does when he is king. And then verse 21 says he will rule and reign 
the rule and reign of Christ. Christ will reign. He will rule from Mount Zion. And I want, you to, I want to share something with you. Look, at, look where it says in that final verse. It says, uh, verse 21 rather, uh, A, it says, And saviors shall come. Saviors shall come. Now what in the world is he talking about? Preacher, there's only one Savior, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you know what? Um, I want to tell you, there is only one Savior, and that is Jesus who can deal with your sin. So that can't be what Obadiah is talking about. He says saviors, plural. Well, there's a lot of explanations about this, but let me say this. This is John chapter, or Revelation chapter 20. Oh, John is um, seeing the vision, and he says, I, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, he says. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death. That's, that's hell. Hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and they shall reign with him a thousand years. When Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom, the millennial kingdom, there'll be people who are ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know who that is? It's me. And if it's you if you're born again today and you're saved. It's me and you. And this also implies that there'll be military leaders in that day, they'll, when Israel will be defended and God will raise up saviors who will come, like, like he did in the book of Judges with all those miraculous, miraculous judges that came and led the nation out of, out of enslavement and debauchery. Saviors will rule with him. There'll be a form of government when Jesus comes. And... There'll be saviors that rule with him. That's going to be an interesting thing, isn't it? That's going to be an interesting thing. And so that's what's going to happen in his kingdom. That's the characteristics of his kingdom, according to young Obadiah. But now notice the citizens of his kingdom. Verse 17, it says, They are a holy people. A holy people. Did you know the New Testament says of the Christian that they are a holy people as well? We get holiness all mixed up. We have some reason outside teaching and understandings that come from outside the Bible have corrupted our idea of what our idea of what holiness is. Sometimes we think holiness is somebody with a heavenly glow around them. Well, that's not it at all. Holiness simply means, it doesn't, it doesn't even mean sinlessness. Holiness means separated. You're separated unto the Lord. You're separated unto His work. You're separated by His saving grace to live for Him. You're not your own anymore. You're not to live like the world. You are the Lord's and you are dedicated and sanctified unto Him. You're a living sacrifice dedicated only to Him in the Lord. They are a holy people saved by the grace of God. 
And that's the citizens of his kingdom. And you're in the kingdom now. You surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and been saved. And so that's what Obadiah teaches us. It teaches us that God will establish his kingdom. Now let me give you two takeaways for this. Two ways to apply these truths, this truth about the kingdom, this principle that God will establish his kingdom. What do we learn about God in this? Our, our God. Well, first of all, we learn that he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. Now, um, Obadiah, you might remember from our very first message, Obadiah preached about Edom. He didn't preach to the Edomites. He preached to Judah about the Edomites. And so that purpose was not to bring Edom to repentance. The purpose was not to even rebuke Edom. The purpose was to encourage and edify the Judeans. They had fallen victim to the Edomites. At one time, under King David the, and, and other kings, the Edomites were subdued. They were paying tribute. They were, uh, David even had garrisons in the land of Edom. But in the course of history, the Edomites broke free and they rebelled and they did some terrible things to the, Judah, to the people of Judah, especially when there was invasion. And it looked like all was lost. And it looked like Judah would suffer at the hands of the Edomites forever. The Edomites were the bullies, if you will. We could put it in today's vernacular. They were the bullies. And so Obadiah, this minor prophet, who we know hardly anything about, preached to the people of Judah, to Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. And he told them, all of these things. God's going to take care of it. God's going to take care of it. You let God handle these people. Let God take care of it. And he tells us the last thing. God's going to establish his kingdom one day. And so there are two key thoughts when we need, that we need to be reminded of in terms of God keeping his promises. First of all is assurance is the assurance that we have and faith that we have in God and His Word. People need assurance today. They need to be assured that God is going to keep His promises, take care of His people, minister to His people, through His people, use His people for His glory. Now, if you wanted to, you could ask the question, how do we know God will keep His promises? Well, you need assurance for that. If the promises of verses 15 through 21 that we read about are to be kept, how do we know? How do we know God will keep them? Well, I want to give you a couple of reasons. First of all, some of these promises in Obadiah have already been fulfilled. He's already kept them. 
You can look back and you can see where God kept His Word. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that God can keep His promises. He's kept many promises for you. He has. He's kept many promises for you. I can look back over um, my life, my life, and my ministry and see where God has kept His promises. Oh, I can look at, we can look over our marriage and see when God has kept our promises, kept His promises to us. And it reminds me that God will keep His promises in the future and for today. You know, I'll tell you one promise He kept that came to mind. I think I've told you this before, but when we, when we started out together, I was a pastor before we ever got married. And uh, she uh, agreed to uh, marry me, and that was a happy day, a glorious day. I was relieved. She said yes. And uh, we, I was pastoring a little old church way out in northeast Texas, beautiful, pristine uh, hay meadows and, and uh, woods and just a small church. And we stayed there for a few months. I can't remember how long. I think we got married in December, and we might have left in, yep, something like that. I can't remember. She knows. And we went to pastor this church, and... And I want to tell you now, uh, the salary wasn't real good. It wasn't good at all. It was, uh, it was um, low. <laughs> Any of you ever have a low salary? Everybody starts out with a low salary. Well, we had a couple of bills. I mean, everybody has bills. We had a couple of bills, and, and upon a day... The, uh, or a week, the bills came all due at one time. And we had to pay the bills. And we were tithers. We tithe, just like God said in, in the Word, that, that God would provide. He says, I open up the windows of heaven. If you tithe, He says, I'll open up the windows of heaven. And that's a promise from God. It's a God's promise. And so we were tithers. We, we've been tithers all our days together. And uh, I want to tell you, um, that week, though, tithe was paid, bills were paid, and uh, there was no money left, and there was a can of pork and beans in the, in the cabinet. And uh, I knew the Lord had promised us he'd take care of us, so I didn't think we were going to starve. You know, I do like to hunt, and I can go out there and... We'd eat squirrel or something, you know, but um, along came one of my deacons driving down the driveway one day that week, and he drove up, and I walked outside. His name was Roy, and I said, Roy, what's going on today? He said, oh, I butchered a cow, man. I said, I butchered a cow, and he said, I want to share something with you. He had one of them big old ice chests, and he opened up the ice chest, rib eyes. I mean, uh, uh, uh all kinds of stuff, the, the hamburger, ribeyes, uh, T-bones, all that stuff. I looked in there and I said, uh, did you bring any sausage? No, I, I didn't say that. Them little red ones, now I'm playing. But God didn't open up the windows of heaven for us that week in keeping with his promise. He opened up the ice chest for us, amen? 
Well, I want to tell you what. You look back on your life and you see that God's kept His promises. You know, verse 17 is a kept promise. Israel is the only nation that's gone out of existence and has come back. This promise was fulfilled right before the very eyes of people in this room in May of 1948. Verse 16 and 17, he says, I'm going to take the, the, I'm going to take the nation of Edom and it's going to be like they've never existed. How many of you have ever met anybody from Edom? God's kept that promise. God's kept that promise. Consider all the promises of Jesus in the incarnation. Even where he would be born, God has fulfilled all of these promises. He keeps his promises. And you can be assured of that by your own testimony and by the word of God. He keeps his promises. But I think the real problem we have and the real issue we have when it comes to the promises of God and and believing it, and, and, and living for it, and, and, and hoping for it, is the assessment that we give. The assessment that we give our situations. If you were from the city of Jerusalem, and you were one of the victims of the Edomites, and Obadiah stands up and preaches this stuff, you might be one who walks away saying, well, hallelujah, God's going to do it. Or you might be, like most of us are, walk away and say, boy, I tell you what, sounds good, but that's just Sunday morning preaching. It's not really Monday morning. It's just not how it is on Monday. Well, I won't tell you our assessment of our problems and our assessment of our issues and our assessment of what's happening that's not good in this world and in this nation. We don't need to let it clog up our blessings from the promises of God. And by the way, I'm going to say this. This business of saying, I'm going to claim that promise, I'm going to claim that. You don't have to claim it. God's done give it. These people, I'm going to claim this promise. What are you, some super spiritual cowboy over here? Let me tell you, God gave it. I want him to claim it. Amen. That's good preaching, whether you like it or not. Right, Maddox? All right. God's given it. You don't have to claim it. Amen. You say, well, I've heard people say that. Well, you just heard me say opposite. Anyway, hallelujah. But we, we assess our problems when we need to assess the promises of God in light of our issues. Let me give you this. Even though we cannot see how he is going to keep his promises to us, we can trust him to do so. That goes back to what we started out with today and in the first message of Obadiah. We go to the Bible looking for answers when we need to go to the Bible looking for him. And that's what strengthens our faith. That's what affirms us before God. That's what helps us. That's what strengthens us. That's what gives us the right assessment. What does this tell me about God? And I want to tell you what, it'll revolutionize the way you read your Bible and the way you live because when you read the Bible, it's going to affect your living. We can trust Him to keep His promises. He sees what we do not see, 
and he knows what we do not know. There's a couple of illustrations of this in our text I want to give you. First of all, look at verse 18. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall that they shall kindle in them. Now that's one of these aha moments. That's one of these, when you're reading the Bible, that's one of these things you say, hey, that's interesting thought. At the time, it was Judah and Jerusalem that was on fire. But in verse 18, God says they're going to be the fire. See, when you're on fire, you can't look at yourself as being the fire. And so here we have this interesting text of Scripture. Let me explain it. In 582 B.C., a few Edomites at the Babylonian captivity... Uh, who survived the Babylonian captivity, weren't taken out, settled in the south of Judah. And the area was known as Idumea. That's why when you read the New Testament, you come across the phrase Idumea. That's referring to where the, the escaped Edomites went. Herod was from Idumea. He was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. In 126 B.C., the Edomites were absorbed into the Jewish state. They were just kind of absorbed into the Jewish state, became a part of the, of the melting pot, if you will. Well, in 63 B.C., the Romans came around and said, hey, we're going to take these Idumeans and we're going to use them. We're going to use them for our benefit. And they made the Herodian, the Herod dynasty, leaders. That's why when you get in the New Testament, you have old King Herod the Great killing the babies of Bethlehem. And you have Herod Agrippa, and you get on into the book of Acts, you have some Herods in the book of Acts who are in leadership position. That's because the Romans said, we're going to put them to work. And that's what they did. But in 70 A.D., when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem destroyed the temple, scattered the nation of Israel, they also did the same and took out and took out the house of Esau, the Edomite peoples. And verse 18, however, tells us something very interesting. Verse 8, 17 starts Bible prophecy. Much of this has not yet been fulfilled. So how is it that if the Edomites were wiped out in 70 A.D., how is it that verse 18 says the reunited nation of Israel, the house of Joseph and the house of Jacob, are going to be a fire and a flame, and they're going to make the house of Esau stubble? How's that going to happen in the future if the house of Esau's gone? You see the question? Come back next week, we'll answer it. No, I'm just playing. Well, some people say that, well, right there, the house of Esau just symbolizes the nations of the world. Others say that um, somehow the Edomite nation in some form is going to be resurrected, restarted, become a nation again. Well, 
Um, which one do you believe, Pastor? I think it's the second. The nation of Edom is gone. There could be some descendants of Esau still around. But God, I believe, God is going to bring back the nation of Edom. And somehow there's going to be another battle like there will be in the future days of tribulation. And Israel is going to win this battle. And the ultimate prophecy of Obadiah will then be fulfilled. Let me give you another. Look at verse 20. It starts mentioning all these cities, the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad. See that Sepharad? We do not know where Sepharad is. If you have a proper map and you look it up and you do find it on a map, it's going to have a question mark. A good map's going to have a notation that says, could be, may not be. We really don't know where this place is. Some say that it's Spain because you might have heard uh, the Ashkenazi Jews, Jews from Germany. Well, the Sephardic Jews came from Israel from Spain. So some people say Sephardic comes from this name. Some people say it's Spain. Some even say it's Sardis. Others, and, and Sardis, some people say it's Sardis, the city that John mentions in the Revelation, because that is where the Phoenicians would take Jewish people and sell them as slaves. And so some people say they're the scattered in Sardis. Others say it's beyond media, the Babylonian Empire. The point is, we do not know where this city is. We do not know how God is going to restore the nation of Edom back so Israel can fight them and win in future days. We do not know that. And that brings us to this, our assessment. We, the point is what we don't know does not hinder God from keeping His promises. We will understand it better by and by. But today you need to understand His promises. Understand it better by and by. You will. But until then, be content with what's revealed and clear in Scripture and be obedient. And I want to tell you what God will keep His promises. So that's the first takeaway. Second takeaway is God not only keeps His promises, but glory to Him, He keeps His people. He keeps His people. He defines them as holy. He talked about the nation of Israel as a holy nation, the church, the people of God, the holy people. He defines them. He delivers them. There'll be deliverance on Zion. He delivers them. You know, He's going to deliver Israel one day. One day there'll be no more enemies. He delivers His people. You know, a wonderful thing, Israel has earthly promises, but the church has heavenly promises. And He keeps His promises to us. So what do you do with this? Well, first of all, I want to encourage you, turn to Christ. 
You need the promises of God for you. He's promised that if you'd call upon him, he will save you. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't want to live in your sin, and you don't want to die in your sin. You want the forgiveness of God, and I want to encourage you to come to Christ. Come to the Lord and receive the forgiveness of God, and all his promises are yours. Yea and amen, the Bible says. Another thing is worship. Worship him and give him thanks for his promises. One of the great promises of God is, is from the book of Jude. Now unto him, not later, but now unto him, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without fault before, before his glory the presence of His glory, before the presence of His glory, with exceeding joy unto the only wise God, our Father, be glory and majesty, power and dominion, both now and ever. Amen. He keeps His people and worship Him for that. You know, here's the deal. Sunday is the day of worship. It's the first day of the week. It's not the last day of the week. Did you know that? The book of Acts, they worshiped on the first day of the week, Sunday. The world tells us it's the weekend. What are you doing this weekend? Well, I'm going to church on Sunday. Well, that's great, but this is the first day of the week. And what we need to do is come in here on the first day of the week and say, God, thank you for keeping us last week, and I know you'll keep us this week. Amen. God keeps us, His people, and worship Him, just that He's kept you. And then I want to share something else with you, and we'll close. Be hopeful. Be a hopeful people. Be a hopeful people. The only way you can be helpful when it looks all is lost, and it looks like we're losing out, and God's people are fading off into the sunset, and biblical righteousness is about gone. The only way that you can be helpful to the kingdom of God and the church is for you to be hopeful that he keeps his promises and his kingdom is established in you and will be over all the earth one day. We ought to be the happiest, most hopeful people in Ocean Springs and Jackson County and Mississippi, and the whole world because we've got him keeping us and keeping his promises. Isn't that a wonderful God we serve? Amen and amen. Let's stand for our song of appeal. This is Cole Andrews, the family minister here at First Baptist Church, Ocean Springs. I want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into our podcasts and sermons today. We surely hope you have been blessed by the Word of God. I'd like to encourage you to visit our website, fbcosms.com, to learn more about our church. We sure would love to see you in church on Sunday. May God bless you.